you haven't seen it yet, there's a news story on The Athletic this week. It's from Bruce Feldman. It's about Cal Safety Ashton Davis. He is one of the stars on, in my opinion, probably the most underrated defense in the entire country, which I think makes them alone a legitimate Pac-12 title contender. Even with that brutal schedule, takes them to Utah, to Oregon, to Washington, and all that is in a period of, I think, six or seven weeks. But anyways, their safety, Ashton Davis, he was a walk-on. And this is the the amusing part here. He's a name that the Cal coaching staff didn't even know back when Sonny Dykes was there for the first couple of years. So some coaches called him Jake for, like, multiple years. The article says some of the Cal staff under former head coach Sonny Dykes thought his name was Jake. And he says there was another kid on our team named Jake Ashton. I think there was confusion because my first name is Ashton but I was getting called Jake for like two or three years, and I wouldn't say anything. And that reminded me, uh, four or five years ago maybe, I was talking to a college football player, and he had a twin brother. And his brother, in high school, his brother was more highly regarded um, as a player, more highly regarded as a recruit, only just slightly though. And they play the exact same position, they look similar, obviously same last name. So the lower-rated brother, he gets an offer letter in the mail. This was his first offer, his first FBS offer. And after he gets that offer letter, he calls the coach to say thank you. And the coach didn't know what the hell he was talking about. He tells him, we didn't offer you. It was meant for your brother. Ultimately, that program gave him an offer too, but they offered the wrong brother initially. So check out that Ashton Davis story on The Athletic if you hadn't uh, really good stuff. We're going to have some good stuff today on the High Motor Podcast. Andrew Doughty here. Thanks to everyone who checked out last week's episode. That was with Mark Mangino. So that one had the most downloads of any show that I've ever done. Big thank you to all those who checked that out. And this week, we got some great stuff. First off, we have Army head coach Jeff Monken. Army coming off that 11-win season, more than 20 wins the last two years. And after him, we're going to cover a lot of ground with some college football talk. My buddy Jason Churchill, he's going to hop on. Thank you for dropping by the High Motor Podcast this week. Army opens the season versus Rice Friday the 30th in West Point before that week two trip to Michigan. And Army head coach Jeff Monken is kind enough to drop by the High Motor Podcast this week. Hey, coach, thanks for the time. How are you feeling now entering uh, year six up at West Point? I'm excited about the season. I I always like uh, preseason camp. It's my favorite time of the year, getting ready for a new season. Uh, The hope and the promise that comes with uh, each new team and so we're just we're back at it, and uh, this is this is the best time of the year, football season. And you've now spent the the bulk of your career at service academies. Did you anticipate, or did you want that when you first kind of got into coaching, or was it something that just happened for you? When I got into coaching, I was just hoping that I could find my way into the the college football world. I I I was the son of a high school coach. Had a great experience growing up, being around football like that, and playing for my dad in high school, and uh, had a, had a tremendous experience playing for Carl Pelker at Milliken. Always knew I wanted to coach. It, it, I I kind of had my sights set on that from a very young age, and I really wanted to be a college coach. and And so, I just feel very fortunate that I've been able to 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 live out that dream and and coach at this level. Uh, never. Never had my sights set on uh, a particular academy or coaches in the, at the academies at all, but it, uh, it has really been a blessing for me and, and, uh, and, and very, very proud to have served in this way uh, in, in, in developing these young leaders to, to serve in our military. So it's a great place. West Point's just 
an incredible place to live and to work and so really excited to be here and be a part of this program. Like I said, going into year six there, you were hired back uh, six years ago coming up in this December. What do you recall about that interview process? I know you had some time at Navy, so you kind of understood um, how the academies worked and all that. But what do you recall about the interview process in those first uh, days at Army back December uh, 2013? Anything stand out for you as you were going through it? The the, the process of uh, of interviewing for another job was was really agonizing for me i loved and still love georgia southern deeply it's 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 a wonderful place an incredible history and tradition what uh what Irk russell did there when he started the football program and what's been built in in a relatively short amount of time is uh it's a story in itself and 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 perhaps one of the great stories in college football. I had a tremendous experience with Paul Johnson. He was the head coach there for five years. I was an assistant for him for all five of those seasons. We had tremendous success, and I was thrilled to be the coach at Georgia Southern. But having had that experience at Navy with Paul and and then, uh, I guess, having the opportunity to, to just talk to the folks at Army, there was really... Uh, this this spirit in me that 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 I just wanted to serve again in that way. I, I felt a tremendous sense of responsibility as an assistant coach at the Naval Academy and and uh, and in our jobs in in helping those midshipmen and and the, those players we coached to to develop as leaders to serve in the Navy. And so to have that opportunity again in uh, in a bigger role as a head coach, I knew that that my influence would go far beyond my meeting room or my position group and that I could really influence a team and uh, inspire a, a group of cadets here, our, our, our Corps of Cadets, the 4,400 students that we have here at West Point, and, and also to, to maybe inspire the United States Army with a team that they could be proud of a team that wins, a team that fights to the end on every Saturday, and and uh, and a team that the American people can be proud of. And and so, I really, uh, as we went through the process, got excited about that opportunity to serve in this way. And and then taking the job and and stepping into a a new a new environment is. Uh, it's always difficult. There's a learning curve, and and uh, not just learning the names of the people, but just what what needs to be done to 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 ensure success, to get it going, and to to get ourselves in a position where we can be competitive and and then win. And so I I remember the first days, and just I think probably every time. Uh, somebody takes a new job, regardless of what the profession is, there's some question about what I do the right thing and what did I get myself into and and how am I going to learn how all this stuff works. And and as, as much experience as, as we had at the other academy and as similar as the two service academies are to each other, we are so different from everybody else. Uh, and But yet in that rivalry, the two academies being being similar uh, to each other, different from everybody else, we're still very different from each other. 
So learning the process here at Army uh, took some time, even though I'd had that experience in another academy. And I know that's a long-winded answer, but really those were the, the emotions and the and, and kind of what I was experiencing through that process. I know a lot of coaches talk about that, that critical first year and even the second year with the buy-in of players. How is a year one at Army different than a year one? I know that you were an assistant at Georgia Southern before becoming head coach there, but how is a year one at an Army different from a year one that you've experienced at other um, non-academy institutions? I think they're all very similar, and I don't know that I don't know that year one – at West Point was a whole lot different than year one at, at other places. Uh, eerily similar to year one at the Naval Academy when I was an assistant for Coach Johnson. Um, just a lot of things have to happen for there to to be this this uh, this movement of everybody kind of going in the same direction and believing the same things and and buying into the philosophy, and that doesn't happen because you walk in and put some signs on the wall or or have team meetings and say this is what we're going to do or what we're going to be or what we're going to believe in. Uh, it, it's built through uh, relationships and developing trust and showing commitment to to the other people in the organization, just, not just me, but everybody in the organization, showing that level of commitment and and as I said, building relationships where uh, people understand that everybody else around them is trying to help them succeed. There's not there's not selfishness. It's it's all about the team and and uh, and this commitment to each other. So that takes time, and I certainly felt that way about our first year here at West Point, and I felt the same way. Our first year at Georgia Southern and the first year at Georgia Tech with Paul and the first year at Navy with Paul and the first year at Georgia Southern as an assistant with Paul. And I go back every every time I've been on the front end with a brand-new coach, and and there's just change, and it takes time, and it took time here. But I'm thankful for that experience and and just the what was built – in us having to go through those fires that, uh, that that really forged a toughness and a and a direction for this program. How does your recruiting mindset change when you go from a Georgia Southern? Obviously, they're, they're geographical, but with scholarship wise, recruiting a player to come to the United States Military Academy. Um, obviously, we all know it's different, but can you somehow put us in your shoes and really explain? how that mindset of yours changes. And I know that you had that experience at Navy before, kind of the same thing. You say it's um, different but also similar in some ways. How does that mindset change when, when you change not only programs, but you're going from a Georgia Southern to a military academy? I, I think the process is very similar. Um, where it changes are, are the, the, typical, uh, the typical things that, that we're trying to share with with a prospect at a traditional school are the the education, the 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 opportunity to to play college football with with that particular team, that staff, the the young men that are in that program, uh, the, the 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 city that that the town is, or excuse me, the city that the school 
uh, is in um, the social life, the the opportunities on upon graduation, and and what you can do with this major or that major, and here all of those things are still true, but there's a huge educational process that needs to happen in recruiting here in telling our story about uh, our graduates and what they do in terms of their service commitment. Here's what it looks like when you graduate from the United States Military Academy. Here's what you'll do. Here's where you'll go. Here's the opportunities uh, that you'll have with different jobs. Here are some unique experiences that you'll have an opportunity uh, to have in your life as a military officer, and a lot of prospects don't know what that looks like. It's easy to understand, hey, I'm going to go to class, I'm going to play college football, and there's going to be a nice, fun social life, and after I graduate, I can get a job, and I'll uh, you know, I'll be a regular guy and, and uh, take a job like everybody else has got, or my dad's got, or my uncle's got, or my mom's got, or, or something I've you know, always dreamed of doing. I'll, I'll try to pursue that. Well, here, all of those things are possible, but before that ever that ever happens is the understanding that there's uh, there's a military commitment involved. Now, some of our our guys come here, and it's what they've always wanted to do. They've always wanted to serve. They've always wanted to be in the army, be a military officer, and others are are, are through the recruiting process learning about this and considering this for the very first time in their life. So there's a lot that happens through the process to to teach and educate prospects and their parents about what it means to serve and what it means to be a military officer. So you throw that in, and all of the other stuff becomes very minor in comparison with that part of the recruiting process and talking through that and, and showing them what it means. And and for the ones we get, they're the ones that realize what an unbelievable opportunity this is and, and that the, the, the possibilities of the world open up to them uh, because of the experience they have as a military officer and the education that they'll take with them from the United States Military Academy. Is there a common reaction from prospects when you, when you first meet with them and you said that some kids, this is just kind of ingrained in them, they've always wanted to do it, but then on the other side of kids that haven't really thought about this, is there some sort of, sort of common reaction uh, from them when you first meet with them? Is there something that they most uh, want to know about the academy from you? Well, the, the first thing that they want to know about is what does the service piece look like? Uh, for ones that, For the ones that don't know and don't uh, don't have any idea what this West Point thing is all about is, okay, I, I get to go to college and it's it's a great school. I get to play college football at a really high level. Okay, I can wrap my head around that. What's this, what's this service piece look like? What do I do? What's my job going to be? What, where will I go? What, and, and they have no idea. It's just this look of wonder. Tell me about this. Explain this to me. And most of the kids we talk to are open to listening and because it is a tremendous school and we play at a really high level in terms of the opponents that we face and the, the big games that we have an opportunity to play in every year. 
and the history and tradition of this program. The, uh, the you could talk about national championships and Heisman trophies, and we've got you know, we've got three of each of those. And there's a lot of schools that like to have one, and and we're fortunate to have a, a history that's uh, that's very much a part of of the the history of college football. So that that's easy to talk about. Um, so that intrigues them and they're excited about those things that, that we have to offer. And it's just the wonder of what's this military piece look like. And I, I, there's very few that say, no, I'm not interested. I don't even want to talk to you. They, they listen. And, and as I said, it's, it's an educational process. And for those that uh, we've got on our team, they listened and they, they considered it and they really realized that this is a, a tremendous opportunity for them to create a lifetime of opportunities and high-level leadership opportunities that not very many people will will have a chance to experience. Now, earlier this year, President Trump, he, he had mentioned uh, during your White House visit allowing service academy athletes to pursue those professional opportunities after they graduate. Do you have any opinion on that? Is that something that you'd also like to see happen? I think for for decades – Coaches at the academies, not just me, but coaches at, at, at all the academies in every sport have, uh, have, have been excited about that opportunity for their, their student-athletes. And our, 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 our student-athletes have a desire to compete at a really high level. It's why they, it's why they, they play sports at this level. Um, they're not any different than anybody else that, that plays sports at this level. They want to compete at a really high level, and they want to pursue what they're good at, what they're passionate about at a really high level. And so I, I'm very much in favor of giving our our cadets an opportunity to, to play professionally, to compete with the very best athletes in the world uh, in their sport and still having a way that they can serve. And I think that, that the president Trump recognizes that there there's, there's a way that they can not only compete at a very high level and, and, and play the sport that they're passionate about and that they excel at uh, professionally, but also to serve our nation in, in the, in the armed forces. So, uh, I applaud him for, for, uh, pressing this issue and finding a way that that can be done because I think it will give not just our academies, but our branches of service, a platform to show the rest of the, of America, young men and women that may not have ever considered going into the army or the, the the armed forces at all that here's a here's somebody that's performing at a really high level as an athlete. I'm watching this this man or this woman play on TV or or uh, competing uh, professionally, and yet they're 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 serving in in the military. You know how can I do that? How can I be a part of something like that? And for them to go from that arena and then be in front of soldiers or be in front of sailors or airmen and lead them. 
I think gives them a level of credibility that is very unique. And so I think this is a, a great opportunity for for not just the people that are here right now in our in our academies, but to to open the door uh, for others to consider coming to these academies that that didn't consider it before. I think there's there are student athletes all across this country that are capable of competing at a really high level in their sport and also desire an opportunity to attend an elite academic institution. Uh, they, they, they've competed at a really high level in their high schools. They want to earn a world-class degree. There are a lot of great schools out there, but there, there are over 3,000 colleges in the United States that offer four-year degrees. So they're, they're not equal. There are some that are at a very elite level academically, and the academies are, are some of those schools that, that, that are among the elite. So it gives a young man or a young woman an opportunity to attend an elite university, play their sport at a really high level, and also to serve their nation as an officer in the military. And in the past, it's it's kind of been uh, an understanding that if I go to a service academy, I, I am going to have to forego uh, my opportunity to play professionally. Now, I do gain you know the opportunity to, to get a great degree and serve my country as an officer. And then perhaps after a couple of years, if I'm still in good enough condition and I and I still have a passion for it, and if by some uh, aligning of the stars, a an organization will give me an opportunity to play professionally, then maybe it'll work out for me. Well, that that for some who want to compete at the highest level for as long as they possibly can, the the, the academies became a place that they weren't interested in anymore, and this will allow us to attract even more of those young men and women in the United States who are elite academically, are elite as athletes, and have a spirit to serve. And I think it will only increase the number of outstanding individuals that will be interested in coming to these academies. And, and, uh, and I think it'll, it'll also help our branches of service recruit young men and women to, to be soldiers and to be sailors and to be airmen and to serve uh, our, our nation's military. And I'm excited about what it will do uh, for that part of it because I, I, I love our country. This is the greatest nation that, that's ever existed on the face of this planet. And we are fortunate to, to live here and to enjoy the freedoms that we have. And so if it will... If it will do anything to stir the spirits of young men and women to serve in our military and serve our nation, then I'm in full support of it. Coach, just a, a couple on-the-field things before I let you go here. I, I keep going back to the Oklahoma game last year. I that you and some of uh, your players said it was disappointing to not pull that out. But going down there and competing with, with a team at an extremely high level, does that do anything for this year, as, especially as you get another really tough road test at Michigan in Week 2? I think playing those games and, and being competitive in those games certainly gives a team confidence. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of people played Oklahoma last year and were disappointed. They they uh, they were a really good team, and the, most of the teams that played them ended up disappointed because they won just about every one of them. And and it was, uh, I think, just a a great confidence builder for our guys a year ago. Uh, as you know, we didn't lose after that. We won nine straight games, and I think it just showed our team that if we play the way we're capable of playing as well as we can executing our assignments and the fundamentals that we can compete with 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 anybody and it 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 was a just a tremendous effort on the part of our team and it was going to take our very best effort to beat them and unfortunately you know it just it wasn't good enough and and there were some mistakes we made and uh and we may have had an opportunity to win the game and but Give all the credit to Oklahoma. Great players, incredibly well-coached football team, and they made the plays down the stretch to beat us. And and uh, our guys look at that game and, and realize that, hey, we were in position to win. Had we done these few more things, maybe we would have. And and uh, so for for everybody we play, uh, not, just, not just those types of games, but we opened the season against Rice. They're very talented. They're very well-coached. And you know, we got a lot of guys on our team that are from the state of Texas that didn't have a scholarship offer from Rice. So we're going to have to play our very best football to beat them. So that's every week for us. But to play a team like Oklahoma that's a, a top five team nationally and take them to overtime, it does give our team confidence, and it should. And, and uh, So that, that hopefully will benefit us as we go through this season. And you're wrapping up camp here. Is there any uh, specific areas? Now, before we hop on the call here, you said you've had some great practices. You've had some um, not-so-great practices. Is there any uh, specific areas kind of heading into that, that week one game against Rice where you feel a little bit better about than others? We've got some good depth at some of our positions, and that's uh, that's really encouraging. There's been there's been times here since I've been here that I frankly didn't feel like we had a whole lot of depth anywhere. And Fortunately, there's some there's some positions for us that I feel like you know if this if if this position had an injury that there's some other guys that are very capable of coming in and and uh, and being able to play and perform and it, unfortunately not every position's like that there's some that we're just crossing our fingers and hoping a guy doesn't get hurt or another guy doesn't get hurt because it you know there there at some point is a drop off and we've got a lot of guys on our team that have played a lot of football for us, not necessarily returning starters, but they've had experience in games and, and, uh, and game experience is really hard to, to replace when, when you've got a guy that has competed and, and has the confidence to be able to go in and perform. And, and now you, you're replacing them with guys that have never been in a college football game or, or played very sparingly. It's not the same. So, we're hoping that, that we can really lean on those guys that have that experience. Coach, thanks again for the time. I hope all goes well with uh, the rest of the camp. Everybody stays healthy. And then uh, going into that week one game against Rice. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Pete Rice and Pete Navy. Jason Churchill this week on the High Motor Podcast. And, Jason, sir, before we jump into a few things here, I want to ask you something that I've been thinking about a lot this summer. So it's all off season, all summer. It's been 
Clemson, Alabama being ahead of the pack, being so far above and beyond the rest of college football, and just about every single playoff prediction has both of them in the field. And yeah, I get that. Like Nick Saban's going to retire eventually, but that doesn't appear imminent. Uh, you know, we could see Alabama, Clemson, like parts what five, six, seven, eight in the coming years. And you know, I personally don't mind seeing that lack of parity. I rather see the good teams playing the biggest games. Like we've seen what happens in March Madness when. There are just too many first weekend upsets. We saw the Butler UConn debacle back in was that 2011, but you know I got to admit that this year, for me, the preseason buzz for college football just feels a little bit lighter. Like I'm just so confident that we're going to see both of them in the title game come January. So my question to you is: Do you, to be very clear on this, before you accuse me of not being fired up for college football, I'm extremely fired up for college football. It's so much more than just two teams playing. It's so much more in the playoff, in my opinion. Saturday was awesome. I fell asleep before the end of Arizona-Hawaii because I'm just not a 2 a.m. guy. But Saturday was great for college football, even if one of the games was also a neutral site game that should never be played. But let me come back to my point here. The predictability in college football, in my opinion, has shrunk. I mean, that doesn't even seem debatable, right? So I want to ask, where are you with all this? Like, do you get less fired up, especially for this college football season, because that predictability just isn't, that high right now? No, uh, for one, because there's four in the playoff right now, right? Not just two. And, and even if Alabama or Clemson uh, or both end up in the, the title game every year and one of them wins the title every year, that just makes it that much. It's, it kind of turns into a David and Goliath sort of thing. Like the other two teams in the playoff are kind of sort of Goliath against those two as this narrative kind of builds up. Well, it's going to be Alabama, Clemson, and which other two. And eventually we're going to see the four go to eight or, you know, 12 or whatever it is. So more opportunities to upset, you know, the Goliaths of the world. And that's kind of how I see Alabama. That's how we see the New England Patriots in the NFL for years. That's how we saw the Lakers and the Celtics in the NBA, then the Pistons and the Bulls. And there's always kind of been a team or two that you're trying to knock off the top. And I actually think sports are better when there's one dominant team either making history at a ridiculous level or, you know, when there's a huge upset to, to take that Goliath off their pedestal, I think that makes it more fun. I prefer it this way, to be honest with you. And I'm not one of those – parody is fine to some extent, but I'm not one of those that's like, I need a different team in there every year. I don't need a new team in there every year. If you're telling me right now that Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma are in it four years in a row, well, if those are the four best teams, I got no problem with it. I, I will just never have a problem. I want the four best teams in it. And the great thing about college sports, and you know this as well as anybody, Andrew, I haven't followed this as closely as you do, the players in the in the tournament change every year, whether it's March Madness or college. The players are different. So we're going to see Tua and Trevor Lawrence again. But then next year, we're not going to see those two. So we're going to see those two like twice. So the only constant here is the uniforms. Really, I mean, we're not going to see the same quarterbacks four years in a row. We're not going to see, and we're not going to see any of the players more than four years. So there's actually a maximum on that. So with college sports, I just I can't imagine people having such a big problem. Somebody out there probably does. That's probably why you're you're talking about this and why you brought this up. But I love it. I, I, I'm a big uh, uh, make history, be dominant fan. Uh, being out in Seattle. Uh, I was a huge Jordan guy. Like it was amazing how dominant he and the Bulls were. You know, six titles in eight years, and you know, two years when Jordan was really out of the league uh, were the only two years they didn't win it. I loved that. I thought it was fascinating, uh, making history, watching you know great coaches, great players, and, and that's what we're seeing pretty much everywhere with Alabama and and Clemson. 
Um, what if, what if we see this year, Andrew? What if we see uh, Texas A and M, uh, you know, sneak up on Alabama? And I'm using Texas A and M because they may have one of the better chances to actually do that. But what if we see them sneak up on Alabama and beat them at whatever point they play? And then there's a little bit of doubt, even if at the end of the day, Alabama ends up in the playoff. If there's any doubt along the way at all, that's just that much more buzz around college football because then we're thinking, okay, now if it's not Alabama, it's Clemson and who and who and who instead so of do you, two. Do you say A&M? Let me, that point right there, you made a lot of points I want to talk about, but that one specifically, do you say A&M because – so, like, when Clemson finally beat Alabama, it, it was kind of finally like, all right, somebody did it. Like, finally, Alabama has shown some flaws. I'm talking about a couple of years ago. Not, I mean, yes, I guess we could even talk about it in last year's context, but they just beat the shit out of them, and that was a completely different Alabama has flaws argument. So do you use A&M as an argument because you say within that conference, not even within that conference, within that division, there could be a threat because Alabama's flaws, yes, they've lost conference games during this, this magical dynasty run, but... If you, if you're saying a team like A and M comes up and beats them, we're not just saying Clemson could do it in the playoff, but we're saying, oh my God, look out! Now there's a team within their own division that could do it. And I guess how long, how much of that would you have to see? How many? Well, let's just use A and M. How many times would you have to see A and M either beat Bama in consecutive years, or at least you know beat them like half the time? Um, you know, kind of do what Auburn did to Alabama for you to actually say, you know what, maybe Alabama. Not only are they not going to dominate nationally, the concern in the division is actually greater. How many times did you actually have to see that? For a few years. And and I don't think the Alabama I don't think that they're ever, you know, as long as Nick Saban is there, it would be right. it would floor me to to go into a season or even at the middle of the season, even if they have a loss, to think Alabama's not the best team in their division, if not the entire SEC. But I, you know, specifically to twenty nineteen, I see that they visit Texas A and M. They're on the road at Texas A and M. Um, winning at Alabama is as difficult as anything in 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 college football, maybe in in all of college sports. And A and M just might have that kind of a team that has the athleticism, that has a quarterback to make plays with his arm and his feet, and and Fisher's got things rolling there. That maybe that's the best chance we see Alabama take a loss, you know, maybe all year, let alone uh, uh, in their conference. But and again, I just used A and M as an example, but. It, I also think Florida is getting better to where Florida is, is going to become more of a threat with Dan. And they got a little ways to go. And I'm not saying they're an elite team, but it, I didn't really like what I saw on Saturday, to be honest with you. Um, but I think we're going to see stronger, more consistent teams and at the quarterback position. I think the coaches that are in place understand that if you're going to beat Alabama with any regularity whatsoever, you have to be good in all facets, but your quarterback has to be a difference maker. You can't really have your you know, fluke things would have to happen. Not that you can't beat Alabama without that, but fluke things would have to happen in a game to beat Alabama unless your quarterback is a huge difference maker. Having Jarrett Stidham as your quarterback, probably not the best way. Not that Stidham was a bad quarterback, but probably not the best way to beat Alabama in any game. You have a Trevor Lawrence, you have a shot. You have a Cam, you know, you know, Cam Newton, you have a shot. Maybe Kellen Mond is one of those guys. Right, and it feels like we're kind of progressing. We'll move on here in a second because I don't want to spend too much time on, on Bama and Clemson and, and everything that everybody talks about all summer. But it seems like we're – and maybe, and for the sake of this conversation, we are reaching quite a bit by pulling A&M to this conversation. Are they ready to take that step right now? I don't know. And you said that that was just kind of an example. But it does seem like we're getting 
more toward it. And what makes it really interesting is that not we're, we're both taking steps towards saying that that Alabama um, can can be beaten. You know, first it was that first uh, Clemson game a couple of years ago. Then I think step two was getting their ass kicked in the national title game. And then I, I think think that step three is then where is that threat in the division? And, and maybe we'll see it. Uh, you know, come this year with A and M taking a step forward, and maybe we won't. Jason, do you want to play? You're wrong. No, however, just be wrong. Just stand there in your wrongness and be wrong and get used to it. Let's play your wrong, but first a message from my bookie. College football kicked off last weekend. The NFL kicks off next week, and this entire season I am putting my money down at my bookie. It is the place to bet on football every single weekend. It has better bonuses. It has more prop bets than any other sports book. And this year, guys, this is a good part, so listen up. There is a up to a $1,000 deposit bonus. You can double your first deposit with up to a $1,000 deposit bonus. Just use the promo code MOTOR, M-O-T-O-R, and use some of that money to enter the first online handicapping super contest. All you got to do is pick five NFL games against the spread every single week, climb that leaderboard, get closer to the $100,000 grand prize. That's MyBookie, promo code MOTOR, bet, win, and get paid at MyBookie this season. Okay, you're wrong. It's simple. I read off statements. Next time, Jason, you'll read off the statements. This week, Jason, you'll stop me when you believe that I am wrong. You're going to stop me only when I'm wrong. You will remain respectfully silent if I'm correct. You got it? No, you're wrong. You're already wrong. I will not. I will not. I will not sit back and be respectfully quiet. Do you not know me at all? Like, what are we doing here? What Number have we been one. doing the last three or four years? We've known each other. Like, do you, do you not learn about Churchill at all ever? Like, do you not keep a notebook? Because I, I highly recommend it. Number one, both Clemson and Alabama will be in the playoff this season. Number two, Jalen Hurts will be a Heisman finalist this season. Wrong. How come? I'm not a huge fan, to be honest with you. I don't think he's a big playmaker. So you don't, I, I don't, you, hum, I, you're not buying the, the Oklahoma system will put him over the hump and get the – he didn't have massive numbers at, at Alabama. He had good numbers. He had efficient numbers, but he didn't have those huge numbers. I don't know how much of that was an offensive system thing. Obviously, he didn't play a lot there. So you're not buying that Lincoln Riley system can get those numbers out of him. Not those kind of numbers. I think the the numbers through the air will be bigger, but he's not a great runner in terms of get him in the open field and he's dangerous. That's not the kind of guy he is. Um, I don't see the kind of arm talent that certainly that that uh, that Murray had uh, or Baker Mayfield. Uh, I'm not seeing it. I, I think he's a guy that'll be in the conversation, but when it comes down to the group that that heads to New York, I don't think he's going to be there. I really don't think he's going to be there. Do you think that he is going to do enough to actually be in? I mean, I don't know how far we want to go here, but do you think that he's going to be in Heisman contention? I mean, he's up there with, I'm not sure how much weight you want to put into odds because, yes, Vegas, as Chase Kitty on this podcast has told us so many times, don't look at the odds that much. They're just trying to get equal bets. They're not actually saying this guy is going to win. But do you think he'll be in that conversation at least, or are you so far down on him that you don't even think he'll be there? I think he'll be in the conversation because Oklahoma is going to be really good and he's going to be the quarterback. I think we're going to see efficiency out of him. I just don't think that six, eight, nine games into the season, we're going to see the kinds of numbers where we can have a conversation late as we move a little closer within a month of those conference championship games and the Heisman ceremony that we're going to be like, yeah, Jalen Hurts is there. I just think he's going to be on the outside looking in at that point. But when you start the season, there's 8, 10, 12, 15 guys you want to talk about. He absolutely has to be in that conversation. I've just never seen from Jalen Hurts the kind of – like you don't see anything to compare him to Murray or Mayfield or Deshaun Watson or certainly Tua or Trevor Lawrence. 
I just I think we're going to see some guys step up and come out of nowhere. We we usually see one or two of those guys pretty much every year. Um, and and ultimately, I think Oklahoma's strength this year isn't going to be the quarterback for the first time in a little while. I think it's going to be that running game and an, an improved defense. I think that's how they're going to win games more than they had the last, well, at least since Baker Mayfield took over at quarterback. So you stopped me and said that I'm wrong. Who could I have replaced? You mentioned some guys there. I mean, the big ones, Tua, Trevor Lawrence. Um, I don't know if you want to throw, like, Justin Fields in there, whoever. Which of those, like, second – I'm guessing if I had said Tua or Trevor will be a finalist, would you have stopped me on those two? No. No, I, I think those two are easy, and I think partially some of the hype comes with uh, – like there's a lot of probability there. If they're healthy, they're going to put up numbers. I mean, you don't have to watch either of those guys play. Um, and, and and what's interesting about Alabama too is that quarterbacks aren't generally in that conversation at Alabama. Usually, it's the running back. And sometimes we even talk, at least on the outside of the uh, you know the the smaller group of favorites. Sometimes there's an Alabama defender before we talk about the Alabama quarterback. Um, you know, I mean, who knows? It could be a guy like. You know, like like Swift at Georgia uh, or somebody along those lines. You know, you you always get somebody that steps up into the conversation in the middle of the year, and then if the, late in the year there's there's the, those Heisman moments. You know, I remember talking about Swift last year. You know, he has a big game, even though he shares time, and you're like, okay, this is the guy. Uh, this is the guy that could be the guy that we weren't really talking about early in the year that wasn't really one of the favorites. That's now one of the favorites. It, it, we usually get one or two of those pretty much every single year it is is Jonathan Taylor you know high on that list for you um how do you feel about uh, Ellinger at Texas um I I think it's Lawrence and, and and Tua's to lose to be honest with you because they're going to be high profile players they are the quarterbacks of the title contending teams the two favorites entering the season like we just talked about and they're going to get opportunities to put up numbers we know that 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 Swinney and that offense, they're going to throw the football. They're going to dominate on the ground some games, but Lawrence is still going to be 16 for 20 for 240 because they're just going to dominate the ACC, and it's very much the same for for Tua at Alabama. I'll be curious to see who the third, fourth, and fifth guy in this conversation ends up being because, you know, to be honest with you, it really could be. Is it Taylor? Is it Ellinger? Is it somebody further down on, on that list? What about Justin Herbert at Oregon? If they're as good as some seem to think they can be, I think they're vastly overrated, but – um, it, Herbert's probably going to be the reason if they get to eight, nine, ten, and zero, and win at Washington. Uh, Herbert might be in that conversation as well. Yeah, you talk a lot about that that built-in advantage. When I had Stephen Lassen on the show a few weeks back, we did twenty-two predictions for the college football season. If you haven't listened to it, it's really good. I mean, Stephen knows the stuff as much as anybody. I highly recommend going back there. And we talked about Heisman dark horses and who he said is completely eluding me right now. But, but one of my points, my pick was uh, Syracuse quarterback Tommy DeVito. And you had talked about having those opportunities, those built-in advantages. Tommy DeVito is somebody that does not have that. But if you look at the schedule, you get Clemson early. And I feel like a lot of these dark horses that come up, they just don't have enough time to quite get there. I mean, like Lamar Jackson, he had those big early games, and he got up there pretty quickly. And somebody like Tommy DeVito out at Syracuse, I mean, everyones they know what Dino Babers is doing. I want to ask about Dino Babers uh, here in a second. But with that Clemson game early, I think it's a great opportunity for Tommy DeVito uh, to get up there and get that opportunity early to kind of 
I don't know, Jason, let's be honest. There are a lot of lazy Heisman voters. I think it's like 15 or 20% of Heisman voters cast their vote before the end of the regular season. How, how on earth, and I've written about this and talked to God. I, I shouldn't be allowed. I feel like I'm just going to start crying because this gets me so worked up. How on earth can you do that and still have your vote for the next? I mean, what, what am I missing here? How are they allowed? This, this is the most probably the most prestigious individual award in American sports. I get that the NFL MVP is maybe a bigger award just because of the pro versus college, whatever. But in terms of prestigious individual non-like title-related awards, probably the, the biggest in American sports. How on earth are these idiots allowed to cast their vote before the season? I mean, this is what cost Christian McCaffrey the Heisman. Right. He should have won yep. the Heisman Trophy. So why yep. on earth are we letting these people vote? And I know it's just an award I want to get too worked up, but God – this really grinds my gears. How are people allowed to vote next year after pulling this crap every single season? One of the problems is there's too many people voting. Like, it's like 2,000 voters, isn't it? Right. If you want to get it right, you have to narrow the field. And then that will make it feasible to make sure that the right people have votes. And that's what the Baseball Writers Association of America has done. That's what the Pro Football Writers Association of America has done with the awards that they vote on, the things that they vote on. Narrow the field and make sure that the right – it's too important now. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe it wasn't as big a deal, but with social media and as many millions of people that are paying attention to this, you can't make egregious mistakes. So you have to make sure that the folks that are voting are the right people. And, you know, To be honest with you, just about anything that gets voted on – you got to make sure the right people are voting, right? You got because you can't force them to be informed. So maybe you shouldn't have a vote in this. This is sports we're talking about, not politics, where it's not your your uh, your right as an American citizen to have a vote. So maybe you shouldn't have one if you're not going to take it seriously. So I, I'm with you on that, but I think the number of voters is the bigger problem here because you can't narrow that down. You can't make rules for guys that have been around voting for the Heisman for 35 years. Um, out of the blue, just narrow it down, get 40, 50, 60, maybe even a hundred. Maybe it's a couple of guys in, in every city, you get a couple of writers. And, and the fact that this is limited to, um, to writers in a lot of awards and then former Heisman winners also get a vote to be honest with you. I don't love that either. What is Barry Sanders paying attention to this? So why is he voting? Like, do we know that he's like, they're giving them that vote because he's a, you know, that that's part of, you know, this whole thing you win. Now you're part of the Heisman family. You get to vote every year. We'll involve you as much as possible or as much as you want to be. But why? Like, why does that, is he paying attention? We don't even know the answer to that question. At least we can say the writers, the beat guys are paying attention. If there's a beat writer out, um, Who's the uh, the ESPN reporter that's doing some NFL stuff on television? Uh, Mita Kimes was talking about this about six months ago. If there's a reporter, a beat reporter, they're gonna they're at least they're watching the games every week. Every week they're watching the games, and then they maybe they have an AP vote, so they're trying to pay attention to that. These Heisman voters, they're not required to do anything except breathe and vote. So how is that a good way to vote for the Heisman? Like you said, the most prestigious award in sports. It's certainly more prestigious than it is the NFL MVP because these guys, these Tom Brady's and the Drew Brees and the Aaron Rodgers of the world will get 10, 15, 20 cracks at it. You only get a couple in college football. So you know I what I'd like to know, you, you, you said it's at first, let me correct myself. I did, there's not 2,000 voters. Looked it up. There's 929. So there's eight, Well, that was for last year's. 870 media members, uh, 58 former winners, now 59. Uh, and then... Do you get a vote if you're an active player? Like, did Baker Mayfield get a vote last year? I assume he did. 
Anyways, so I, I, eight, I believe that's the rule. Yeah, if you are a Heisman winner, you are allowed to well, vote. Now, whether they all do or not, benefit, I don't know. You should not have been competing last year. Anyway, there's 870 media members who get a vote, so 59 former winners now this year, and then one fan vote. Uh, fan vote. Something you said there is another thing that just gets me really fired up, and we kind of went back and forth on Slack about this uh, before. I feel like I talk about it every single season, is these preseason uh, coaches polls and AP polls, and I'm under the belief that these are extremely important. Whether or not you want to think they're important, I think they're extremely important. They're extremely important for perception, and I understand, you know, what Rob Mullen is is Mullins is doing, what Kirby Hokut did for the playoff committee. It goes way beyond. They're not looking at AP uh, top 25s. I get that. At no point during the season are they pulling that up on their computer. However, I think I'm under the impression whether or not they say it or not. I think it influences perception. I think it influences scheduling. It influences. Uh, um, player expectations, excuse me, team expectations from fans. It, it can influence firing decisions. If you beat some top 10 team, but you lost to uh, an unranked team or whatever, I think that the top 25s matter a lot. No matter if you want to say they do or not, I don't, they don't right, actually They, they do, they shouldn't, but they do. Right, and even if you don't want to believe that, I was going back and forth with somebody on Twitter, you don't have to believe that they do, but they do. So it, should we just, they're never going to go away, but if it was your choice, would you just completely eliminate them? I think there's too much fan buzz around it. Would it be better for college football, like the players and the coaches, and would we get more things right? Yes. But is that better? Because it, we need people talking about this. We need people complaining about this. We need people loving this. We need people hating this. We need people you know, paying attention. There needs to be sports talk radio and Twitter and Facebook and all that. We need that. So I, I wouldn't get rid of it. Um, personally, where I sit with like top 25s, Again, it comes back to voters. Who's voting on this? I would rather, like, to be honest, I'm a, I'm a Joel Klatt fan. I would rather talk about and, and, and wait for Joel Klatt's top 25 to come out versus, like, the AP or the coaches poll. Because at least I, I can trust that one guy is going to be as objective as possible. And I actually trust Joel Klatt when it comes to that. Now, a bunch of other folks where there's, you know, dozens of writers voting on, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know if they know the sport they're covering for crying out loud. Like you probably live in a town just like I do where the beat reporter for your, the biggest school that's, that's close to you. And for me, that's the university of Washington. I don't for sure knows, know that he truly really knows the game of football and knows what it means to be a voter. So why would I trust his vote? Well, how many games is he watching? And this is, this is to, there are some really damn good beat writers out there, which you and I both know, but sure how many are. games Absolutely. are they like for Minnesota is closest to me. How many games, uh, like Marcus Fuller writes for the Pioneer Press. He's a good writer. Give him his, his due, definitely. But he's traveling for games. When he's going down to Columbus, that's what he's doing on Saturday. He might catch a game here and there. And I don't know if I assume he's an AP voter. But he's not watching every single game. Just like the coaches poll, how many of the actual coaches have time to watch a football game during the season? Probably none. And then they're passing it off to their SID. How much time do they have to watch a football game when they're traveling, doing press releases? None. And we know the coaches aren't actually making the votes most of the time. It's the SID. Right. We, I, we I'm, know a, that. I'm appreciative that these that these votes don't technically matter in the rankings, but it still uh, it still gets me kind of fired up. The one last thing I want to talk to you here, I mentioned it when I was talking about Tommy DeVito. I want to talk to you about Dino Babers. Again, when, when I had Stephen Lass on the, the predictions podcast a few weeks ago, I asked him, who is USC head coach in 2020? We both said Dino Babers. What is your opinion on that? 
I'm, I'm curious what you're basing that on it is does uh, does Babers have a history that you that you like, especially on the West Coast or in L.A.? Is there some sort of tie there? Why is it Babers and USC? Why isn't it Babers and something on the East Coast or something else in the Northeast or something in the South? So what what's the basis there for that? Number one, I don't believe that that Babers. I mean, we hear this every God, Jason. We hear this all the time when when people are saying that Iowa State fans are saying Matt Cam will never leave Iowa State. I don't know if he's ever going to leave there, but if if you have watched any second of college football over the last fifty years or twenty years, however old you are, coaches leave. I mean, they lie and they leave all the time. I don't know if Matt Campbell is one of them. But when you sit here and say that Dino Babers is happy at Syracuse, yeah, he might be really damn happy at Syracuse. He's doing a great job. He's making a ton of money. I'm sure it's fine. Syracuse isn't the worst place to live. But I don't buy that he wouldn't leave for another job. I mean, this guy has left two head, he left two head coaching jobs. Yeah, it was Eastern Illinois and Bowling Green, but he still left two head coaching jobs in a period of like 23 months. He's had like 79 different coaching stops in the last 30 years of his career. So I don't How many buy people are saying he, this, by the way? Are people saying this, that why would Dino Babers want to leave Syracuse? Are people saying that? No, no, no. I, no, that no. I, 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 don't want, I don't want to make it seem like I'm replying to this mob that doesn't actually exist. But it, it, it falls under the, the just perception of local fan bases thinking that their coach would never leave. We can at least agree on that, that there, there's this ridiculous ignorance that your coach is not going to be the guy that leaves, even though every single coach leaves if your job isn't great. Let's admit it. Syracuse, not a great job. They've improved their facilities. They're improving their crap dome a little bit. They're actually finally getting air conditioning. Congrats. But it's still a bad job. It's still not a great Power 5 job. So I don't I don't buy that he could st- that he's going to stay there. He did spend what do you have like four or five years out at UCLA. He's he's recruited up and down the the West Coast. He's at San Diego State. Uh, he was at Arizona. He was at UNLV. I think he was at um, Arizona State maybe too. Northern Arizona. Um, so he's he's been everywhere. So he kind of fits that mold. And I'm not saying that he's only going to go to USC. Like if if Texas A&M would have opened, um, and that and Jimbo wasn't there for whatever reason, I would say yeah, maybe he's a candidate at Texas A&M. When Les Miles left LSU, he was my prediction to go down to LSU. He had never coached at LSU or even in the state of Louisiana. I don't think. I mean, he's been close. He's, he's coached basically everywhere. He's coached at Baylor, for example, uh, Texas A&M, like I said, San Diego State, Purdue, UNLV, all over. So I'm not saying that Dino Babers is specific to use USC, but I think the interesting part here is that. Looking at USC's athletic director situation, and I kind of just want to get your take on Lynn Swan because I know that you have some very strong opinions about uh, UCLA and USC, so I want to get your take on him there. But I I, I kind of see that. First of all, I think Clay Helton's gone. I don't. There's there's no question in my mind that Clay Helton will not be back after the season. But I see the USC coaching search kind of going like the UCLA basketball search. I feel like if UCLA basketball would have just come out and hired McCrone right away, everyone would have loved it. Instead, they went up and down the both coasts and embarrassed themselves and then hired right, Because now he's their second, third, fourth, fifth choice. Yeah, or like 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th sure, choice. Sure, if they had just sure. hired Mick Cronin, everybody would have been happy. I thought it was a great hire. I didn't care when they hired him. I don't really care if they he, they got embarrassed, whatever. It was a great hire. So I see their search going like that because I don't trust Lynn Swan at all, just like I don't trust Dan Guerrero at, at UCLA. So I don't trust Lynn Swan. I think he's going to go after I think he's in over his head, and he's going to say, I want Chris Peterson. Like, he's going to say, I want, I don't know, Gary Patterson, whoever. I want Kyle Whittingham. I don't think he's going to get any of those guys. I think he's going to take his shot at all these established guys, like Guerrero supposedly did. I don't Calipari interest, whatever, but supposedly he went after all these guys. And he's not going to get any of these guys at USC. 
he's not going to get any of those established top 20 names. So with Babers, like I said, I don't buy people thinking that he could stay at Syracuse if those people exist. Like, we hear that shit every year. Like I said, he's left for, for all of these jobs. So my question back to you is, what do you think of Lynn Swan? And most importantly, what type of job is it to where they could even get a Dino Babers? I think they can get Dino Babers. When you go back to Lynn Swan, uh, for me, when you think about USC, you think about football. So to be honest with you, I don't really care, and I don't think the boosters and the alumni really care what happens in any other sport except football. I don't care what they do on the basketball court. I really do not care what happens. And I don't think really at the end of the day, anybody else that matters that much really cares all that much. If the football team is winning and winning the way that they should be, the winning the way that they have traditionally, Lynn Swan looks good and is good at his job. If the football team is not doing that, Lynn Swan looks bad and is bad at his job. And guess where we are? USC is not winning the way they have traditionally, the way they have, uh, the way they should be. Uh, they have a, a they have an amazing group of talent every single year to recruit from, and sometimes they have pretty good recruiting classes. But they are getting their ass kicked on the recruiting trail every single year by not just Chris Peterson, but sometimes by Kyle Whittingham, and now again by Oregon after Oregon took a step back for a few years. USC is third, fourth, sometimes even fifth in the conference in recruiting right now. And that is, you know, again, that's on Clay Helton. But the football program is the athletic program at USC. Lynn Swan is failing. So, no, I don't think he's very good at his job. Whether whether he made a good hire for his basketball coach or not, you know, you or I could have made that hire. You know, like, like it's not that hard. Make sure the football team is good. And the fact already that he hasn't pulled the plug on Clay Helton tells me all I need to know about Lynn Swan. But here's the thing. Go go beyond Lynn Swan. How many coaches are you going to let that guy hire? And and how many mistakes well, he's only are you going to let This Lynn... is his first one, though, right? Because wasn't right, Andy Enfield there before? But that's the thing. How long do you let it go? Like, just because he's only hired one coach, he's probably still made two or three mistakes with the football program already. One, by hiring Clay Helton in the first place. And two, by not firing him already. Like, why is Clay Helton still the coach at USC? It's USC. This isn't this isn't Oregon State where you can well we'll just give a guy he's not that bad. There are ridiculous expectations there. And until he finds a guy who's good and good immediately, you give a guy 2 years at USC. You give a guy 2 years at UCLA to get things going in the right direction and eventually win win win. It's not like Clay Helton took over an awful program. Were they in great shape? No, but there's talent everywhere. So recruit, coach, win. Is that happening? Are any of those three things happening at USC right now in their football program? Because all signs point to no. So, so not only like is Helton, you don't trust Lynn Swan to make this hire at, at all. I don't. I wouldn't trust him to mow my lawn right. I mean, you got to be kidding. What has he done since he retired from football? That was good. He was terrible on the air. He's been terrible as the athlete. I mean, come on. Like, I don't trust him to do anything. So no. Do I think he could get Dino Babers? Yeah, because I think you throw money at somebody and Babers. I don't know what Babers is making, but. USC is certainly willing to pay him or whoever their next coach is going to be more than he's making at Syracuse. And again, this is what it comes down to first and foremost when you're talking about coaches like Babers that are in places like Syracuse. Is there a, is there room for his career to grow and to move up? Yes. USC would certainly be a step, maybe two, ahead of where he is at Syracuse. But it's really all about the dollars. It's because they can pay him more. So where does, that's where at does, the end of the day the money, what we're talking where about. Where does the money stop then? Because, yes, you can throw a whole bunch of money at 
all kinds of different codes. Like I think if USC threw a bunch of money at Matt Rule, they could get him to take that job instead of entertaining some of these NFL offers that he has been over the last couple of years. So where does that money stop? We clearly saw where the money stops in basketball for UCLA. Where does the money stop in USC? You think they could get a Dino Babers, but you know, is there enough money to get a Matt Campbell? Is there enough money? I had thrown Gary Patterson. I don't think that Gary Patterson would ever leave for that job, but at what point, and we don't have like coaches' rankings in front of us, but like at what point, I said that I don't think they could get a top 20 established coach. You know, I don't know where that, that like who's in like that 19, 20, 21 range. I don't know who's 21 on the list. Where does the money in for you? I think they can, but the, it's not like there's five or 10 guys out there that are going to be willing to leave where they are right now to go to USC. And I think, I think some of that's because of Lynn Swan. Do you trust Lynn Swan to back you up? Because when you get hired, and and I'll use Chris Peterson because I'm closest to that. When you get hired as the head coach of the football, you are the CEO of the football program, but you still have a boss that can dictate the way you do things, uh, where money is spent, where money is not spent, has to back you up with rules you make. And if Lynn Swan doesn't do that the way that his new head coach wants or needs, it's going to be it's going to fail. And if Jen Cohen comes up here, takes over Scott Woodward, and it's like a match made in heaven. Like everything is perfect. Like everything is rolling and it's all about the football and it's all about uh, winning on the football field. Don't have to worry about anything else. Is that going on at USC right now? Of course it's not. So even if he brings in the right guy, even if it's Urban Meyer, like is Lynn Swan the athletic director that's going to allow Urban Meyer to run his football program the way he wants or whoever the next coach is, whoever the next right coach is at USC. I don't trust Lin Swan. I don't trust Lin Swan at all. I don't know who makes the the decision on Lin Swan's job, but man, and to be honest with you, I think Dan Guerrero is also terrible at his job, but he's better than Lin Swan. And I don't think it's remotely close. Lin Swan's one of the three worst athletic directors in the PAC 12 right now. And that's saying something because there's some pretty bad ones. Right. And at least I, I understood Dan Guerrero. I mean, I was absolutely fine with, and we talked about this. Um, I think last fall, you and I were talking about when when Washington had their their men's basketball hire, and, and ultimately went up and got Mike Hopkins. And I think that was a phenomenal hire at the time. It's even looking better now. But I think you had said that that you knew they reached out to what was it like seventeen coaches, but you don't know any of the other sixteen, right? Uh, I think we, we, we know a few, we don't know um, as many as we knew how, like how Tennessee botched their search no, or how UCLA, it no, wasn't something right. like that where every single interest got right. out. Mm-hmm. So it, it's right. amateur hour at UCLA and USC. I don't, again, yeah, you make a good point. I don't think I trust if Lynn Swan were to go after like Matt rule, I've said, for example, or Matt Campbell, I think all of that would get out. Yes. You can't prevent it in some cases like, um, like Alabama, I had Jeff Goodman on the podcast, right? When the, the, the um, coaching carousel was going in basketball in March and clearly Alabama was interested in Steve Prohm because Prohm got a new deal after a, a good, not great season. Clearly like there's some things that you just can't control, but with Washington's men's basketball search, they kept that so quiet and got their guy. He wasn't a home run splash hire to a lot of people around the country, even in Seattle, which you could speak to better than I can. But I think with Dan Guerrero, I at least expected him to make a good hire in the end. How they handled it was complete piss. And I think that Lynn Swan would would probably handle something the same way, where every single person would get out. And like I said at the very beginning of this conversation, that they ultimately end up hiring Dino Babers. I don't care if they hire Dino Babers day one or day 40. I think it's a great hire regardless. But I don't trust Lynn Swan to make Dino Babers feel extremely uncomfortable and know that he wasn't necessarily option number one. Mick Cronin was not option number one for UCLA, clearly. 
So I don't think Dino Babers would be for USC, and I think that would be uh, very known publicly. All right, let's wrap it up here. You can catch all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, every podcast app. Uh, I've personally been very fond of Overcast lately on the iPhone. Great format. It has these really cool tools like slowing down or speeding up certain shows if the host talk too fast, too slow. Uh, it automatically removes silences. Highly recommend Overcast on your iPhone if you have one. And you can find the show on Twitter at High Motor Pod. Jason, it was a pleasure. Let's uh, reconvene next week after week one, shall we? Sounds good. Go football. <laughs> Go football. Thanks again to Coach Jeff Mocking for dropping by the show. And thanks to you all for checking out High Motor this week. We will be back next week. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's names. But it didn't matter because deep inside the feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in